If you want to be a better writer, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd Podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor and poet, and I have a passion for middle grade and young adult stories, spy stories, fairy tales and master detective novels. And I'm Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for and about women. So on today's episode, Valerie pitched Turning Red so that we can study genre. This 2022 animated adventure film was directed by Domni Shi from the screenplay by Domni Shi, Julia Chow and Sarah Stritcher. Okay, Valerie, we're talking about genre this season and you've chosen a Pixar story for us. And I'm so excited to be analysing a Pixar movie. But can you tell us why you chose Turning Red? Yes, I sure can. Uh, a friend of mine, Mark Leslie Lefebvre, first told me about this movie. He asked if I had seen it, and I hadn't. I hadn't even heard of it at the time. He said, I would love for you guys to do that on the podcast. And within 24 hours, two other people, completely unrelated to Mark, also said, Valerie, I really want to know what you think about this movie. <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> Now, before I go any further, heads up, there's spoilers. This is like a blanket heads up for every podcast episode that we do. There's always going to be spoilers because we can't talk about the story without talking about the story. <laughs> okay. Melanie, I have to really stop making assumptions about the films I watch before I watch them. Because you know what they say about to assume what it does to you and me. <laughs> One of the people who recommended this film to me it simply said that it was a story about a girl who gets her period. And then they said, oh yeah, and it's set in Toronto, which for anyone in Canada, that is a really fun detail to see a Pixar movie set in Toronto, anywhere in Canada for that matter. So um, when I heard you know, that description, I thought, okay, well, this is a maturation story. And then I checked Disney's marketing and it's also listed as a coming of age story and coming of age is the same thing as a maturation story. And yes, hundred percent. There are some terrific teenage or preteen things. We get to see the regular teenage angst, but there's also some terrific detail that really sets this film in a specific time and in a specific place. For example, we get to see the CN tower and the Sky Dome, which is now called the Rogers Center. That's where the concert takes place. We see the trolleys going back and forth on the streets in Toronto. And I bet all Canadians picked this up. The breakfast scene with Mai and her parents, there's a box of Tim Hortons donuts on the table. Now, Tim Hortons, for anyone who's been to Canada, there's one on every corner. We have a lot of them. It's a coffee shop, coffee and donuts. But as far as I know, nobody eats those donuts for breakfast. <laughs> Not that I know of anyway. And of course, there's the Tamagotchi, which when my son was little, let's see, this film takes place in 2002. My daughter was born in 2003. And it was shortly after that, that my son got a Tamagotchi. So he probably would have been six, maybe five, six, uh, too young to have it. But everyone, I remember everyone had Tamagotchis. And of course, my has one. And this, the clothes, the sneakers, I loved all those little details. Sooner or later, though, 
uh, what every novelist will learn is that although we might aim for beautiful line, line writing, pretty sentences are not going to save a story that doesn't work at a structural level. And in the case of Turning Red, their obvious attention to these types of details I just picked out, while beautiful, that would be the equivalent to our beautiful line writing. And while I really appreciated them, they weren't enough to save the story that I don't think really works. Oh, I don't even want to say that out loud because I'm a huge fan of Pixar. And I really wanted this to be a home run, but I don't think it is. I was wondering as I was watching the movie, like, wait a minute, what's going on here? What is this panda about? I'm confused. And that confusion didn't really leave me. <laughs> I, I, I feel the, the disagreement vibes coming through the airwaves from Melanie at me. <laughs> I'm going to carry on unless she interrupts me. <laughs> so yes, I absolutely, I think this is a maturation story. However, it doesn't quite work. So let's just dive into this genre a little closer and see so, what we're working with here. Oh, oh here just, she comes. No, okay. no, no so I, I do just, I, I agree with you in terms of some of the parts of the story, the mystical, magical parts, and a few other things. I do agree with you. And it was, and, and in some ways, it reminded me a lot of Brave in that you left going, what happened here and why is this happening? However, I went and had a look last night at the little short that they do or the promo video with all the writers and the producers and they talked about why they chose a red panda in that and it became clear to me after watching it why they chose a red panda and what they were trying to do. However, if that doesn't come across in the movie, then I'm with you. I think there are some fails in there. So, no, there's <laughs> not. There's some parts. I, I've, I think there are some really excellent examples of some things in the movie that I'll talk about later. But I think, yes, there are some parts of it that it's not clear without explanation. So if it has to be explained or you have to go somewhere else to find it out, I think that's a bit of a fail too. Back to oh, you. Good. I thought we were going to come to blows. <laughs> it's too early in the show for us to come to blows, Melanie. <laughs> Yeah, I think it would have to be over something greater than turning red, I think. <laughs> That's right. So I know what Melanie is going to say later. Let me just say now that, yes, I agree with what she is about to say. So I kind of went in a slightly different direction so that we don't just repeat each other through the whole show. All righty. So to prepare this week, I looked at three main sources, the story grid, Save the Cat Writes a Novel, and a book that was recommended to me by Leslie Watts called 20 master plots and how to build them. Honestly, I thought I was going to be spoiled for choice when it came to information about the maturation plot. I really did. It is so prevalent. It's everywhere. But nope, I was wrong. I was wrong. I was not spoiled for choice. So one thing that these three resources that I just mentioned have in common is that they all have this coming of age or maturation story following an arc plot form, as set out by Joseph Campbell in Hero's Journey. In fact, the Hero's Journey is a coming-of-age story form. There are so many myths and legends about the boy who leaves his village, goes on an adventure, slays his dragon, 
and then he returns home as a man. That's about a stereotypical maturation story as you're going to find. So the 20 Master Plots book was written by Ronald B. Tobias, and he states that the coming-of-age story always involves a physical change in some way. And it's always about a child who transitions into adulthood. And with respect to Ronald B. Tobias, I totally disagree. <laughs> if we were to take this definition, then Turning Red is clearly a coming-of-age story. And we don't argue that it is a coming-of-age story. Uh, I just think it doesn't quite hit the mark. But the problem with Tobias's definition, as far as I see it, is that it's very narrow. It's a narrow slice of the genre. Sure, that's one way to present a maturation story, but the form, the genre, has evolved greatly, as genres are wont to do. Obviously, we still see it in children's fiction, and Melanie is going to talk about that in a bit, so I'll just leave that there so I don't steal her thunder. <laughs> but we also see it in all kinds of adult fiction, in various genres, believe it or not. It's paired with all kinds of other genres, and it could be a secondary genre. It could be in a subplot somewhere. It's in everything or just about everything, lots of stuff from Star Wars to Brooklyn to whatever the latest YA novel is. Now, with Save the Cat Writes a Novel, I know this is one of the most popular books on story theory on the market. I think just about every client I've ever had has been familiar with it. And it was actually the book that was recommended to me back in 2014, maybe 2015, when I first got into this and first decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to see if I can get all the way to the end of this book and see if I can publish it. And maybe I'll even be a writer for a living. And that was the book that was recommended to me. It was actually Save the Cat, like Snyder's, and then after that, Jessica Brody's Save the Cat Writes a Novel came out. So anyone who's anyone had both of them. I'll be honest, though, it's not a reference I go to very often. Now, there's nothing wrong with it. I want to be very clear about that. So if this is a book that you love and it's working for you, then by all means, stick with it. However, I want you to understand that at its best... It's an introduction to story theory. That's all it is. It's an introduction. So once you learn the concepts in either Brody's work or Snyder's, if you want your stories to continue to improve and you want your artistry and your mastery of story to continue to improve, you will have to go to other sources. Uh, and all roads seem to lead to McKee sooner or later, to be honest. So the beat sheet in Save the Cat is essentially an introduction to the phases of the hero's journey. Now, Brody's explanations are clear. They really are, and they're easy to understand. So I can totally see why so many writers gravitate to it. And I do agree with her comments about story having form, not formula. Since the book is so focused on the hero's journey, all of the plot types outlined in her book they're all arc plot stories. Cast your mind back if you to the episode we did on Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. If you haven't heard it, I recommend you listen to that one as well. 
where we talked about arc plot, mini plot, and anti plot. So Save the Cat Writes a Novel is focused only on arc plot type stories. And that makes sense. I see why she did that because most of these stories on the market, whether they're novels or, or films or TV shows, they're, they're arc plot stories. Brody also makes the point, again, which I agree with, that maturation stories are not just for children's fiction. She writes, quote, you don't have to be a teenager to have a little growing up to do. And that is so true. I agree with that. And that is something that as writers, I think it's important for us to remember that. Brody also says that when it comes to maturation stories, there are three, what she calls essential ingredients. So the first one is that the protagonist has to have a life problem. The second one, there has to be a wrong way to attack the problem. So the character has to go about attacking the problem in the wrong way. And three, there needs to be a solution to the problem that involves acceptance of the hard truth the hero has been avoiding. Yeah, that is true. But you know what? That's true of all arc plot stories, regardless of the genre. This is why I say that Save the Cat and Save the Cat Writes a Novel, why they're introductory. They're introducing you to the concepts, which are solid concepts, but they don't explain that this relates to an arc plot story. So what happens then is that when you're trying to analyze novels yourself to learn from them or analyze films to learn from them, it gets really confusing really quickly because not all stories are arc plot. There's um, a lot of mini plot around or uh, multi plot, like multi character plots. So there's a, there's a lot of different types of stories out there. Anyway, moving on. So this brings us to StoryGrid. And as a StoryGrid certified editor, I have a bias toward this. I totally admit that upfront, but there's a reason I have that bias. And We'll come to that. So as a story grid editor, I have talked about the genre Clover before in previous episodes. They have it on their website. And also on their website, they have a series of what they call cheat sheets, which outline the conventions and obligatory scenes or obligatory moments for each of the content genres. Now, since story grid or, and Sean Coyne, since that draws on the teachings of Robert McKee and Norman Friedman, you're going to hear echoes of McKee and Friedman in what I'm about to say. So the reason I like the story grid genre Clover is that it's comprehensive. It works for a beginning writer, but then as you grow as an artist, as you become a better writer, the Clover grows with you. And the more I am studying a genre for each of these episodes, the more I'm appreciating the genre Clover, because if nothing else, what Sean Coyne was able to do is organize the information that's out there into a system that, that allows you to attack it. it. It brings order to your mind so that when you're studying anybody's concept of genre, you can put it in a place, <laughs> which really helps me. Now, the maturation story is all about a character who is naive about some area of life at the beginning of the story but who by the end has a degree of wisdom. That's easy enough to understand. We've all been adolescents. We've all gone through this in real life. And if you have teenagers, you're being reminded of it all right now. So maturation is really about what's going on 
inside the character. These are character-driven stories. Sure, there may be a physical change and there will definitely be action happening in the physical world, but a physical change for the character is not required. The way in which a character learns these lessons and goes from naivete to maturity is by going through the various phases that we know as the hero's journey. Now, I know there's a lot of talk in the writing community about the hero's journey being too patriarchal and blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to deny that Campbell references heroes as male characters, but that's because the stories that had been written up to the point of his research tended to have male protagonists. We all know this. We all know that historically, most books were written by men about men. We are still trying to change that today. So you can't change what happened in the past, and I have no intention of fighting it. I don't have enough energy for that. (laughs) I'm just going to work from where I am now forward. So for me, when I study the hero's journey, or even the heroine's journey for that matter, I take gender out of it. Totally. I see it as a human journey. It's how we change and grow. Now, I could build a whole argument around that, but this podcast would be two hours long. So let me just say that and park it there for today. And maybe in a future episode, I'll come back and chat about it again. For now, suffice it to say that a coming of age story follows an arc plot structure, which is the hero's journey structure. All right. So the thing that's confusing me about Turning Red is that I'm not sure what Mai is naive about at the beginning of the film, and therefore I'm not sure what she's mature about at the end. Yeah, she gets her period. That's a physical change that, you know, that's what Tobias was talking about. Yes, absolutely. There's all the expected teenage angst and antics, which are pretty funny. But what exactly is the Red Panda? Is it a metaphor for her period, which her mother calls the red peony? Is it a metaphor for cultural heritage? Or is it a metaphor for her shadow self? I think that none of these metaphors, no matter which area we're talking about, I don't think any of them quite work, yet it's touching on all of them. Remember in the episode we did on Late Night, That was episode one of this whole show. We said then that a story is about one thing because a story that's about everything is a story that's about nothing. Turning Red to me feels like a story that tried to be about everything and it could have worked beautifully as a story about physical maturation or a story about cultural appreciation or a story about integrating the shadow self. Any of those would have worked And the red panda would have been a wonderful metaphor for any one of those. But I think in the end, it isn't really about any of them. And in my opinion, that's why this film is falling short of a fully realized maturation story. Now, I could go through the conventions and obligatory scenes as outlined on the story grid cheat sheets, but I don't think that's necessary. Honestly, I spent three years doing that kind of thing (laughs) over on the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable podcast. So that information is already out there. It's been done. So I don't think I need to repeat it. I will say uh, that the movie does hit some of the points there, but again, not all of them. 
And I think that's due to the fact that the panda isn't working as an effective metaphor. So let's look at these three areas of metaphor so you can see what I'm talking about. All right, let's look at let, uh, the red panda as a metaphor for puberty. Well, the panda appears on the morning migrants or period. So it's not a big leap to assume that it's a metaphor for puberty. Uh, and it's red. <laughs> at least they didn't name the panda flow. Anyway, there's a bit, there's a bit of lovely comedy between her and her mom. You know, there's the usual adolescent embarrassment and the mother who goes over the top by providing every sanitary product on the market. The poor mother. But the panda is also referred to as a monster. It's a curse. And it comes out when Mai gets upset. Now, I'm sure this is meant to be part of the joke, and I get it. I just think it's an unfortunate joke, especially in a story targeted at young girls. Women don't turn into monsters every time they menstruate. Likewise, when we get angry or upset, it's not because we're hormonal. Sometimes it's because somebody's being a tool. <laughs> so this, I feel, is a cliché. And Pixar just fell right into the cliche pothole. Furthermore, I'm not done yet. They're going to hold a ceremony led by a man so that Mai can reject the panda. I think her mother even says there's a cure for it. A cure? <laughs> there's no cure. You just have to wait for menopause. <laughs> you know, there is no cure. And we can't choose to have our periods or not. It just, it happens. So the question I know you're asking is, am I reading too much into this? And honestly, yes, I think I am. <laughs> I do not believe for a second that this was the writer's intent. I am saying it though, to point out to you that the red panda that may have started out as a metaphor for puberty, but it doesn't carry through the story properly that way. It doesn't make sense if you keep carrying it through the story as a metaphor for puberty. So therefore it's not quite working that way. It's really interesting that you say that and talk about that as a metaphor, because as we sat down to watch it as a family, my daughter, who's 13, said, came up and whispered in my ears. So she's got three brothers. So she came up and whispered in my ears, mom, this is a movie about getting a period. And I went, oh, okay. All right, well, let's see what that means. So that was what she had also been told about the movie. And I remember sitting there watching it the first time thinking, I don't think that's what it's about. Isn't <laughs> that it's, interesting? It's really funny because she said that's what she had read or seen or heard and was, you know, about, oh, and, and, you know, it spiked her interest, which is good. It's a story about a girl about her age and, but I remember watching it and going, no, that's, I don't think that's what it's about because I, like I'm going, but it's a panda that turns red and it's not in a cycle and there were just things there that didn't mentally as an older person compared to her newness to all of this. I just didn't, I, I didn't see it. So it's interesting, I think, that I had that, I was sort of bracing myself going, okay, this is going to be interesting. But as I watched it, I thought, oh, no, I don't think that's what it was about. <laughs> that is interesting. I thought that too. If this is a metaphor for puberty and she's just popping in and out of it for a whole month, this poor child, that's all I thought. <laughs> and instantly I thought of the classic, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, which I bought for my daughter. And I still have the copy that I had as a little girl. 
And the American Girl uh, Doll Company had some wonderful nonfiction books. So I was really hoping that this would be a, a new story about puberty for girls because we're due for more. <laughs> this yes. is a great topic, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. So whether they meant it that way or not, the audiences clearly seem to be taking that way, but I don't think it quite worked. So it could also, in my opinion, be a metaphor for cultural heritage and the acceptance of it or rejection of it. Mai's mother tells her the story about their ancestor who was granted the ability to become a red panda so that she could protect her family. I thought that was a lovely story. I thought it was great. However, once they emigrated, what was once a blessing became a curse. Now, if, that, if the red panda is a metaphor for cultural heritage, then that's a very uncomfortable message. I don't like that message, especially here in Canada, you know, where we see ourselves as a mosaic. If it is meant to represent culture, then I think it's beautiful to see Mai accept it and keep it as part of her identity as she moves into adulthood. Now, saying that, at the same time, we see her mother, her aunts, and her grandmother again choose to reject their pandas. So is this film suggesting that older generations reject heritage, but younger generations accept it? Nope, I don't think so. I really don't. Again, I think the red panda could work well as a metaphor for heritage, but it isn't working fully that way here. It kind of starts to be that, but it doesn't, again, it doesn't carry through. So the last possible metaphor that I see is that the red panda could be a metaphor for the shadow self. It's made crystal clear that Mai becomes the panda when she gets too emotional. And by too emotional, what they mean is that she's angry or upset, which I think is interesting because love is also an emotion. However, when she thinks about her friends and feels their love, she returns to human form. So it's not that it arrives when she's too emotional. It's when she's feeling negative emotions. Of all the metaphors, I think this is the one that works best. Now, I'm not keen on the notion that my that Mai's shadow self comes out when she gets her period, but I'm going to move on from that because I can feel a rant coming and nobody wants to hear that right now. The, <laughs> the panda appears, as I said, when she's angry or upset, but it also appears when Mai is being selfish and materialistic and opportunistic. She wants to go to that concert and she has absolutely no problem using the red panda as a way to get money. Now, Mai does not display all of the seven deadly sins, but those that she does have are associated with the panda in one way or another. Okay, lust, I think, is a bit strong for a Pixar movie, but she's got a crush on the boy, the poor boy at the convenience store and the, uh, the members of Four Town. Just a little side note here, they call themselves townies. I'm from Newfoundland, and I am a townie. I am called a townie because I am from the capital city. If you're not from the capital city, you're called a Bayman. So I laughed when they call themselves townies. I have no idea if the writers knew that at all. Uh, but anyway, so another deadly sin, greed. Yeah, Mai has no problem using the panda to get money for concert tickets. She is happily, I hesitate to use this word again because we're talking about Pixar, but she's happily pimping out the panda, right? 
And the more money she makes from the sales of t-shirts and photos and whatnot, the more she wants. At one point, when they're on the bleachers at, uh, I think it's just a rehearsal, uh, not a rehearsal, uh, you can tell I come from the arts world, uh, a practice, a sports practice, that she and the girls are on the bleachers. And she even screams in frustration that she should have charged more for the photos. And it's Miriam who says, just relax, like Akuna Matata, just enjoy the, the view of the beautiful boys playing their sports. Gluttony? Well, yeah, Maya's the panda is scarfing down the birthday cake. But to be fair, um, she does say that her mother overfeeds her just when she's a, a normal kid. And Wrath, obviously, panda the panda appears when Maya is freaking out. So four out of seven isn't bad. <laughs> now, I don't know if it was the writer's intention for the panda to represent the shadow self, but I like it as an idea. And I love that Mai integrated it at the end. I mean, that's a really important lesson for kids to get. Harry Potter talks about this all the time. Harry even has a bit of Voldemort inside him. Yeah, spoiler alert for Harry Potter too. <laughs> and so there are, God, as I'm saying this, all these titles of kids' books are popping in my head. This is a really common theme. And I love it as a theme because we can't reject our shadow. It's part of who we are. And as Sirius Black says in the Harry Potter uh, movies anyway, I can't remember what's in the books, it's up to us to choose the light, not the shadow. So I think if the filmmakers had chosen to focus on this last metaphor, the panda as the shadow self, they would have had the screen time to develop it fully. And then I think the story would have worked better as a maturation story as it is. I'm kind of lukewarm about this one. It hits some of the marks, but not all of the marks. Not enough for this to be a story that works, and I wouldn't recommend it to any of my clients who are writing maturation stories as a good example of, of how to do it. What do you think, Melanie? Yeah, I think I agree with most of what you've said, especially in the summary of how they came to make the movie and why they chose the Red Panda. But it's really interesting because, again, like I said before, I think what they were intending to do and why they chose it and how it comes across in the movie are really different. And I think that's why it doesn't work because they didn't make that very clear. Um, and I think they would have benefited from having made that a lot clearer. <laughs> but anyway, have a look and let me know what you think when you see it. And I, you know, I said before, like when I was watching it with, with my family that, yeah, there were parts of it. And I, I suppose I feel my way into stories. And I think I've, you know, when we talked in the first few episodes, that's something I use as a tool. So I feel my way into them and then think about that afterwards. And I definitely did feel that, yeah, there were some really lovely elements and the humour and other parts of the story were really drew me into it and I liked them. But I didn't walk away with going, that's the next best movie that Pixar have made. So I'm probably sitting in that lukewarm bath with you. I've taken a, a bit of a different approach because I wanted to really think about the beginning of the story because I, I found the beginning of Turning Red really interesting and also look at how does that set up the expectations or the, the premise as a writer. So how can you use different techniques or different tools that you get to write for a particular audience or tell a particular story? And as someone who writes some um, for children and adults, I would actually say that writing for children is much harder um, because they are far less forgiving when a story doesn't suit them or it doesn't work. 
and they will put down a story and not persist with it if it's not meeting their expectations or they're not enjoying it. And they definitely have a lot of choice when it comes to other things that will entertain them, entertain them and, and keep their attention. So Pixar movies generally are excellent examples of how to write and attract and maintain an audience's attention. And most Pixar movies reach across from adult to children, and they're usually enjoyed by both those all audiences, whether you're younger or older. But today I'm going to focus on the kidlit aspects of Turning Red, and there's a whole heap of lessons, I think, to be applied when we think about grabbing and holding the reader's attention, especially at the beginning of Turning Red. So I'm going to draw from The Anatomy of Story by John Truby to help break down what happens at the beginning of Turning Red. So I'll classify, again, Turning Red as a worldview maturation story using the classifications of genre in Story Grid and Story by Robert McKee and Sean Coyne for the Story Grid. A maturation story also fits in with the age of the protagonist, Mei Lin, who has recently turned 13. And um, the producer says in the short promo film called Embrace the Panda that turning red is about growing up and figuring out who you are and then embracing that. And I see, I did see that coming through as a theme when I watched the movie. So our expectations that Mei Lin or Mei as she's called, she'll encounter a problem where her understanding of the world she lives in will undergo a significant change. And the movie does that reasonably well in the opening scenes and the beginning sequences. Valerie and I wanted to study genre in this first season because we both agree that everything in a story is determined by genre. Now, Truby doesn't talk about genre in the same way that we do, but he does talk about the premise of a story and that everything and every decision you make is based on the premise. This is slightly different from what we've spoken about in previous episodes, but I believe Truby's premise and the genre, in accordance with Coyne and McKee's work, are related in that they provide a framework that maintains a writer's focus on the type of story they're trying to tell. Frameworks like genre or a premise are great because they provide constraints. Genre or the type of story establishes the expectations in readers or an audience's mind. The expectations or conventions then provide a writer with some essential scenes or moments that need to be in their story. So it's very similar to understanding how to plan out your story. Anatomy of story lists and explains a process to create and establish a premise for your story. Now, I've been listening to Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. It's a leadership or a business book, but it has some great advice for those of us who create stories. And my personal favourite from Creativity Inc. is the catch cry that story is king. And I should go back and say that Creativity Inc. and Ed Catmull is really about Pixar's journey and how they grew as a business being in the storytelling industry. So that probably gives you a bit of context that I didn't mention. But Story is King is one of the catch cries that they use, and it's a real focus point for Pixar. This means that no matter what technology can do, and no matter how new and bedazzling something appears, it will never gazump Story. Truby and Pixar use a process whereby they work ideas through an iterative process. But start with the Story concept. 
And sometimes that concept will change as the ideas are developed. But most of the time, Truby and Pixar stay true to the original concept because the idea behind the story is based on a personal experience. Here's how I've used some of the tools in Truby's Anatomy of Story to help unpack Turning Red and how I think they've developed the type of story that Turning Red tells. The two concepts I really want to focus on are the premise and the designing principle. And the premise is the story stated in one sentence, while the designing principle is, and I quote, a statement that organises a story as a whole. It's the internal logic of a story. So my example for Turning Red, or the premise of Turning Red, could be a teenage girl has to choose either to accept the same path as her mother and grandmother or choose to be herself. Now, Truby says the premise is the one decision on which every other decision you make during the writing process is based. Character, plot, theme, symbols, it all comes out of this story idea. If we follow the progression of May through Turning Red, we can see how May's actions, her mother's actions and May's friends all link back to this premise. So here are some points that I noticed in the opening scenes. So May is a good girl. She enjoys her mother's praise and favour. May's friends ask her to join them as they start to enjoy interests outside of family activities and she doesn't go with them even though she'd like to. May finds herself daydreaming about a boy in the local shop and her mother discovers her drawings. May hides her embarrassment and the truth from her mother and the next day she wakes up as a giant panda. So they're just things that I think link back to that story premise or set up the rest of the story to develop how May is going to either choose between her true identity or to stay and make the same decisions as her mother has made. Now, the designing principle is a statement that organises the story and includes some sort of internal logic so that all the parts of the story hang together, as I said before. And it's also the thing that makes the story original. So the designing principle for turning red could be force the teenage girl to change into a giant red panda so she can't hide who she is from her family and friends. Now, it's not easy trying to contain a story idea into a simple sentence. It's also a bit easier to do this when analysing someone else's finished story. So if my proposed premise and designing principle were similar to the ones that guided the development of Turning Red, then we can see how they constrained the story, but also how they helped keep it on track. So if I refer back to our first episode, the story is about one thing, and this is a way to keep your eye on the ball of the one thing that your story is about. As I listen to the Creativity Inc. book, this is what the story creators at Pixar do, and this process can take them three to five years. So I just also want to make a comment on the stereotypes because I think it's really interesting to think about how the stereotype of tiger mums comes out in, in Turning Red. So they're of Asian descent and I think that's really important. So it is part of their story to tell. And while I'm not of Asian descent, 
I really can relate to May's situation. I was always the good girl and my mum and her sisters have been huge influences in my life. The idea of letting my parents down when I was a teenager would send me into conniptions and it still impacts me today. So I relate a great deal to May's situation throughout most of the movie. And for me, I think that is part of this story that really works and it shows a level of really good characterization because we can't underestimate how relating to a character draws us into a story. This leads me into thinking about presenting the character as an embodiment of the story's premise right at the start of the movie, which is something else that I think this movie does quite well. May's wants and needs are stated up front in the opening and she thinks she has everything sorted. So May says in her opening monologue, I'm Maylin Lee. Ever since I turned 13, I've been doing my own thing, making my own moves, 24 seven, 365. I wear what I want, say what I want, and not to brag, but turning 13 means I'm officially a grown up." So her situation, however, is ironic which is perfect because this sets up the potential conflict early. So May's words and her actions do not align because a few minutes later, May is walking home with her besties and they ask her to join them for karaoke. And May, who does her own thing and makes her own moves, rushes home because it's cleaning day. And her friends lament every day is cleaning day. And May talks about how much she loves cleaning. And As we see May at her family's temple, we see that she is clearly not a girl who is doing her own thing. And again, I think that sets up a really good dynamic and sets up the conflict that we start to see in May's internal maturation. So I'm going to go back to my working premise for Turning Red, which is a teenage girl has to choose to either accept the same path as her mother and grandmother or choose to be herself. So when we meet May, we are presented with the conflict between what she thinks she is, an independent, loud and proud dork, and what she really is, which is a girl who is a loud and proud dork, but she is also a girl who doesn't want to disappoint her mother. So the premise is working well. So remember, a concept is like genre or a premise combined with a designing principle can keep you on track and help you keep your story about the one thing. So as I come to an end of this episode, I just have one final comment. Double happy endings in kids' stories. I find them quite annoying because I believe they do kids an injustice. So if I think back to the Lisa Cron quote that Valerie discussed in episode two of West Side Story, and I quote, we're wired to turn to story to teach us the ways of the world. Then I think If I think about this, then I think we should write stories for children that conclude in a bittersweet way because that's the way the world is. Not every ending is happy. Not everyone gets what they want and what they need. And if stories teach us the way of the world and offer a simulation for our brains to learn how to deal with scenarios we have yet to experience, then stories are an opportunity for kids to experience loss and disappointment and also maybe an instructional tool on how to build resilience. Now, I'm not saying that a bad ending is what's needed, but I am advocating for bittersweetness. 
where the protagonist may not always get what they want, but they may get what they need. And I see in Turning Red, May gets what she wants, which is to keep her mother's acceptance, and what she needs, which is to accept who she really is. Now, everything comes together for May. However, as the mum of four kids, three of which are teenagers, this is not my experience. Okay, today's action step isn't about genre at all, actually, even though I know it's the theme for the season. It's about metaphors. I want you to think about your work in progress and consider whether a repeating metaphor might help you tell your story better. If not, don't worry about it. Your story can work just fine without metaphors. But if you do choose to use metaphors, be really clear about them and use them intentionally. That wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we discuss being the Ricardos. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For even more information about putting story theory into practice, subscribe to Valerie's Inner Circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. If you'd like to find more out about me, please visit melaniehill.com.au or visit me on Facebook under Melanie Hill Author. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time, one step at a time, and have fun. Mm-hmm.